The Bible says in Proverbs 19, enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. You know, we don't just need people to speak into our lives when we're struggling with sin. We need to have people around us who can help us when we're enthusiastic and passionate so that we don't do the wrong thing misguided by our zeal. This week, as in the past number of weeks, we're looking at Paul's road trips. Uh, The Apostle Paul, this week, in chapters 20 and 21 of Acts, and by the way, I'd encourage you to go home, sit and read those chapters. It's a very exciting part of the book of Acts. All of Acts is exciting, but Acts 20-21 is like, pardon the pun, the mother of all road trips. This is... if. If the Bible were divided into television channels, the book of Acts would be the travel channel. This is Paul's last missionary journey. And he goes through Turkey and Greece. Now, let me stimulate your elementary mind imagination here. You know, the the older you get, sometimes imagination sort of fades. But when you're a kid, when you're a when you're in kindergarten and the teacher says, who here is an artist? Everybody raises their hand. <laughs> By the time you get to the sixth grade, like three kids raise their hand. But when you're, when you're in kindergarten, everybody's an artist. Your imagination is fertile. So help me with this. This is, this is a map of the Mediterranean right here. Okay. Over here is the, um, I can remember it. It's going out into the Atlantic. You've got Gibraltar on one side. You've got North Africa on the other. You come around. North Africa, and you, I'm doing this backwards in my head. That's why it's a little awkward. But you're coming around North Africa, and you get over here to Libya, what's now Egypt, and you come up into Israel and so forth. Back in Paul's day, <clears throat> you get up here, and it's Syria. It's still it's Syria. And he starts where ISIL is today, and he comes from Syria up through Turkey, what they call in Scripture Asia Minor. He comes across, comes down to a town called Troas, comes over here into northern Greece called Macedonia, and drops down into Corinth. Corinth is like down in the southern part of Greece, and it's the party town. It's the town with wild women on the streets and navy guys and all of that. And there, there's a church. And what he's doing on his last missionary journey, this is his farewell tour. He's going to go back to Jerusalem, and he's going to say, I appeal to Caesar, and they're going to take him to Rome, and he's going to be there a few years, and tradition says they beheaded him there. So this is the, this is the big turn. This is the beginning of the end for Paul. So he's in Corinth, and can you imagine? It's the spring of 58 AD. He's been on the road for five years. And his purpose in being on the road is pastoral encouragement. He helped plant these churches all across Turkey and down into Greece. And he's going back to encourage them because they're in pagan territory pretty much. It's not easy to be a believer there. People can't just get up and come to church as easily as we did this morning on Mother's Day. So he's there to encourage them. He wants them to hear what he has to say by way of encouragement. Hearing is so critical. Jesus has this phrase in the Gospels. He who has ears to hear, let him what? 
Hear. Let them hear. What does that mean? Well, I tell people, you know, when I talk to folks, they say, that was a, that was a good service. Thing worked pretty well there. I say, yeah, well, yeah, because the people wanted to hear. You are 50% or more of this equation. If you didn't want to hear, this would be tough up here. But because you want to hear, you chose to do this, then it encourages me or any speaker up here. So hearing is key. When we went to this conference that Steve was talking about a couple of weeks ago in Salt Lake City, I was signing in at the hotel. And the lady in charge of the conference came up and patted me on the arm and said this. We are so glad to have you here. What she didn't know is that 10 years ago, playing ball in the backyard with one of our grandsons in Illinois, the bottom range of this this ear's hearing went away like that. It's called sudden onset hearing loss. So in two minutes, I lost the hearing in this ear, essentially. And I went to the doctor and he said, what you have is sudden onset hearing loss. I said, I know that part. Can you fix it? I said, how did this happen? He said, we don't know. But when we don't know, we call it a virus. So I got a virus or something and it went away. (laughs) And so she said, we are so glad to have you here. What I heard was. I, I see that you've dyed your hair. <laughs> and the second thought to go through my lightning-like brain was, why would a guy dye his hair white? Why would he do that? And I turned to her and said, I didn't dye my hair. And she cracked up. She just, and then I told her the whole story. So, and, and Ruth, Ruth has lost, as you age, you tend to lose the high end of your hearing. And so she's lost that in her left ear. So when we're in the car, these two ears aren't good. And we have fascinating conversations. <laughs> Drove into the driveway some years ago and said, a rabbit hopped across. I said, look at the bunny. She turns to me and says, what's so funny? <laughs> Paul wants them to hear. He wants them to hear clearly what he's saying and hearing his encouragement in the days ahead. Listen to how it reads in Acts 22 through 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 20. If not, it'll be on the screen. When he had gone through those regions, the ones I just described, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he's down here in Corinth, in Greece. He's going to go by sea back over to Syria, to Tyre, to Ptolemais, to Caesarea, and then to Jerusalem, these coastal towns. But he discovers a plot against him because they're always plotting against him. He ends up in jail. They chase him out of town. They got to smuggle him out. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And he decides to go back the way he came. So he goes back up through above the Aegean Sea and over to the coast of Turkey to a town called Troas. And we'll get to that in a minute. This looks like a road trip. What it really is, is a relational adventure. It's a relational adventure. Kingdom-centered relationships, first point on your bulletin. Kingdom-centered relationships are nurturing. He's gone there to encourage him. What's the first relationship you ever have in your life, coincidentally? It's your mom. That's the first face you see when you're born and you come into the land of giants who speak funny languages and hold you upside down and smack your bottom. That You know, you're saying, don't hit me, I'll cry. It will be good, you know. The first face you see is where you're able to focus. And for a baby, for the first six months or so, they focus 13 inches out. 
And they don't have technicolor. They see in grays and blacks and whites. But the first face they see is about the distance from a nursing child to a mother's face. And Jesus, when he was born, because he was just like we are, he was born. The first face he saw was the mother, was his mother, a teenage girl, probably 15, 16 years old, most scholars think. It was Mary, not married to his earthly dad. And there she was. It's the first face he saw. And she nurtured him because kingdom-centered relationships are nurturing relationships. They're encouraging relationships. And as he grew up, in his preteen years, when he was 12, about the time of Bar Mitzvah for a Jewish boy, they took him to Jerusalem for Passover and lost him. You remember that? It's not good to lose the Messiah. And they looked all over for him. A couple of days they looked for him. And finally they looked in the temple. You say, well, why wouldn't they look there first? Well, he's 12. Why would you go to the temple to look for a 12-year-old guy? You'd look in the creek or look someplace. You wouldn't look there. And, and she's upset with him. Well, that's what you moms do. You love us so much. You get upset when we just wander off because you don't know what's going on. And even at that time, he had the long view. We'll get to that in a moment. He said, I need to be about my father's business. So what does nurturing look like? Well, it looks like presence and conversation. Nurture takes time. Nurture is hanging out. So he just doesn't send letters to these churches. Later, he sends letters when he can't go back. But he takes five years to go back to all those places. He's not taking the bus. He's not taking a plane. He's walking across Turkey, walking down into Greece. And he spends time talking with them. Uh, we had the men's retreat a couple of, year, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I asked one of the guys, so how did, you, how did you think it went? And they said, you know, it was really a, a great time. A couple of hundred men went up the mountain. It was a good time. And he said, and it was great that you and Mark were there and Pastor Jeff was there and Jim Zachmeister was there and the team of allied leaders. He said, but on that Saturday afternoon, several of us took a hike up into the mountains, up above YMCA, the Rockies. Just several guys. And we just were together and we talked. And it was one of the most profound times we've had. Nurturing has to do with presence and conversation. Acts 27 through 10. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Now this is, again, this is Luke writing. He's journaling this story. That's why if you read Acts 20, 21, you'll see this. He's journaling day by day events. The first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. So they start eating dinner and he talks like for six hours. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. I love this part. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep. Any of you have done that? I've done that numbers of times sitting out there. I've just sort of nodded off. And just you know, Some of you are doing that now. Wake up. No, it's okay. Just don't snore. Just go for it. He fell into a deep sleep. As Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and he fell out of the window, three stories down, kills him. That's what it says, taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over, taking him in his arms and said, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. He revives him. So Paul talks forever. Eutychus falls asleep, fall three floors down. Paul goes down, revives him some way. It's a miracle. And then this happens. And when Paul had gone up, 
verse 11, and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. He's talking a long time. Kid falls out of the window, dies. He goes down, revives and comes back up, has dinner, keeps talking all night long, all night. You say, what's with that? Well, I would submit that great conversations of great consequence demand great conversations. Things of great consequence demand great conversation. Kingdom-centered relationships are of great consequence, and they demand conversation. I like texts and emails. Trust me, I'm doing this. I just did a little bit between services. I got kids that are flying places, and I texted them. But, but texts and emails can't get us where we need to go in kingdom-centered relationships. You know, I, I love it, but conversation is the base for relationships. I find out where you are. I find out what you think. I find out what you feel. I might read body language and tone and inflection. I was with some young university students from CSU a few years ago. We were sitting at the Egg and I having breakfast, and I asked one of them, 20 years old, I said, so what would be a word that defines your generation? And instantly he said, overwhelmed. And in my head I'm thinking, my parents' my parents' generation was overwhelmed. They had the First World War, Great Depression, Second World War. What are you overwhelmed with? And he said, information. And I get that because this year there will be more new information generated this year than in the 5,000 years combined prior to this year. And next year it will be the same. And next, That overwhelms me. And I said, but yeah, but you're so connected. And he said, yeah, I am connected on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and stuff with numbers of people. My problem is I don't know how to start a conversation. And I've thought about that for three years. And I've asked other people. I've asked other young people and old people because it's not a young people thing. Social media and the Internet is not a young people thing alone. It's our thing. You know, I reach for the phone when I'm in the car and Ruth says, may I help you? You know, she has that kind of conversation. Or Dick, I'm talking to you. Put that down. Put the device down. Studies have shown that when people get absorbed... In this, ongoing studies over 20 years have shown that when people get absorbed in this a lot, it starts shutting out this. I love the digital age because it can take me wide. It can take me wide. I can just Google stuff in Nepal and I can Google stuff about anything. I just, you know. But where it can't take me is deep. Where it can't take me is the eye-to-eye contact. Because eye-to-eye contact makes us human. Eye-to-eye contact, face-to-face, is what makes us real in that way. So, here we are, and now Paul has come down to Troas. He's had this, he's had this meal, the Passover meal, and he wants to get to Jerusalem over there by Pentecost. So he's got seven weeks to get from here to there. And he does it by coastal ships. You know, he's like taking buses, except they're on water, from here to this island to that. He's island hopping all the way down around the coast of Turkey. Acts 20:17 says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. I served the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials. Key phrase. I served the Lord with all humility, tears and with trials. 
that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And by this, he means the Jewish leaders, the powers that were how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Kingdom centered relationships not only nurture, but they love fiercely. Point B, love fiercely and hold gently. I watch parents with kids and I see fierce love. I see siblings, especially when they get a little older. When they're younger, they you want to kill each other. But when they're older, I see a fierce love oftentimes. He calls these elders from Ephesus. He doesn't go back to Ephesus, I, I think, because the last time he was there, he caused a riot, sort of shut the whole town down. So he's down here on the coast in Miletus, about 20, 30 miles away. They come down to him and he says to them what I just read you. And he says... I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In essence, I'm willing to fight for you. I'm your cheerleader. I want this to happen later on, and I'm not going to read the text. He says, when I leave, others will come in and try to destroy you. They'll come in and try to twist your thinking and all of that. But he says, I've wept over you. I've cared for you. When I, when I read this text, or as I was reading this text again a couple of weeks back, it was about the time of the NFL draft. How many of you guys watched part of the NFL draft? Okay, some of you. I loved watching that, not just to see the players when they were called, whatever it was. But I liked watching the coaches who had coached those players. You saw the players and their families, they're hugging and kissing and all excited. But the coaches, coaches um, have been called the tribal chieftains of our day. Male or female, they're a combination of uncle or aunt or uh disciplinarian, teacher, dad, mom, uh, cheerleader. That's who coaches are. They're grateful in the NFL draft. They were grateful for the young men. And Paul has that kind of feel about him when he's talking to these leaders. You see people cheering for other people, and it does something to you. Last Saturday, I had the privilege of speaking at two commencement services for a little college near Notre Dame, four miles from Notre Dame, South Bend, Indiana, Bethel College. And um, they had two graduation services, one at 10 and one at 5. The one at 10 was for people getting master's degrees and for adults who had gone online to get a bachelor's degree. And the 5 o'clock one was for traditional students, the freshly scrubbed 22-year-olds who were graduating and going off to win the But that 10 o'clock one was fascinating because these older people would come up and they were getting bachelor's degrees. And this one older woman, but very vibrant, you could tell, she got up there on stage. She stood about this tall. And when she, her name was called, this whole section of bleachers over here just exploded. Like 60 people screaming and whistling and going, yes, you know, just going like this. And afterwards, I sought her out in the crowd and said, by, by any chance, are you a grandma? She said, no, I'm a great grandma. I said, were those all your people? up?" He said, those are my grandkids and my kids and my great grandkids up there. in the st-. I, And she said, and I'm one year younger than you are. I said, well, OK. <laughs> I had happened to let that slip along the way when I was giving my talk. And I said, what'd you get your degree? And she said, well, I work. I do some church work, but I work in the criminal justice system here in the South Bend area. And I got a biblical studies degree because I felt that would help me. 
When we cheer for each other, that's that kingdom-centered peace where we love fiercely but don't take the life out of people. We let them go. And here's Paul saying, okay, I loved you well. I've wept over you. I'm making a special trip. This is my farewell tour to tell you I'm going now, You're, but you aren't on your own. You have each other and the spirit will be with you. And those kind of relationships often have tears. Point C. Why do we weep? Why do we cry? Well, for pain or regret or remorse or joy or loss or relief or because I'm moved by something. And they, you know, sometimes you weep because the guy says, well, I'm staying. You say, oh, no. But sometimes you weep because they're leaving. And here they're leaving. It's heart wrenching. The word tears is used several times in these chapters. We weep over different things. And, and Mark, Marcus was just up here talking about being in the elevator, weeping, and the lady coming up and saying, I'm sorry for your loss. You know, it's just when we're deeply moved by something, that's what we do. And this message about Jesus to these people from Paul is so deep in him that he said, I've wept over you as I've shared this. And now they're weeping over him as he's leaving. I remember being 12 or 13 years old, standing on a dock in San Francisco, California. A family was going into missions at the Philippines. And it wasn't back in the mid-50s. You just didn't get on a plane and fly to Calcutta. You usually took ships. And they loaded your stuff up in oil drums, 50-gallon oil drums. You load your stuff. And we stood on the dock, and it was a freighter called the California Golden Bear. And we had prayed over this family. And they only had 12 passengers on a freighter. That's, that's the limit that you could take in that time on a freighter. And we had prayed over them, and as they were waving as this ship backed out of its berth, they started to sing an old gospel song. Till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. That's the kind of feeling you have when you read this text, and it says they knelt on the beach and they wept and prayed for Paul. That's how it was. Point two, kingdom-centered conversations speak the truth about we, what we know, think, and feel. Here is Paul, and he's coming to them, and he's saying, this is what I know. What I know is I'm going. What I, uh, what I think is that there are going to be people coming behind me who are going to try to stir the pot and change your minds or your hearts. And what I feel is that God's going to take care of you, so stand strong. When you listen to Jesus in the Gospels, you get this layering. I tell people, when you have conversations, you can't just have a conversation. Kingdom-centered conversations have three layers. They have the layer of, this is what I know. Second one is, this is what I think. And the third one is, this is what I feel. Not necessarily in that order, but those three things. This is what I know, think, and feel. Listen to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to go to the cross within 24 hours. And this is what he prays to his father. Mark 14:36 and he said, "Abba Father, all things are possible for you." Point 1, remove this cup from me. Point 2, yet not what I will, but what you will. He uses the word Abba, which is like Papa or Daddy. Papa, this is what I know. All things are possible. Remove this cup from me. That's what I feel. If there's any way to do this another way, let's not do the cross thing. But what I think is, not my will, but yours be done. This isn't going to work. 
this reconciling of people. So there'll be 5,000 people at Timberline Church in this state that wasn't named then called Colorado. On a Mother's Day morning, 2,000 years later, he says, if that's going to work, what I think is I need to do the cross thing. There's always a balance about telling the truth at all three levels. What happens with men and women a lot of times is we guys will we'll easily tell you what we think. We're all about ideas. We'll tell you what we think. You ladies have great capacity for telling us what you feel. And feelings are way deeper than thoughts, right? I tell people in premarital counseling years ago, when you get into that first argument or Christian discussion, whatever you call that thing, you know, she's going to say some stuff and you're going to say some stuff. And and she's going to say stuff that's deep. And you're going to say stuff because you're trying to defend yourself that you just thought of 20 seconds ago. And she's going to think it's deep and you just thought of it. And what she says is deep, you think she just thought of. when it, So you need to get your act together and figure that out. Otherwise, it's just a problem. And so knowing and feeling. And so Ruth and I have hundreds of these discussions that go something like this. Dick, this is when I was a college president. I know you feel responsible for the, all these things. But I think you're spreading yourself too thin. And let me tell you how that makes me feel. I've had that discussion a lot of times. I I just had one this week. (laughs) Still a work in progress, but we're getting better. They're fewer. They're fewer than there were. But speaking to each other in those kind of conversations, those are kingdom conversations. This is what I know. This is what I think. This is what I feel. Thirdly, kingdom-centered understanding takes the long view. Acts 20, 22 through 25 And Paul says this, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions afflictions await me. I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He knows something they don't know. He has the long view. Jesus had the long view. They said, you need, to, you need to go up to Jerusalem now. You can read this in the Gospels. He says, not yet. My time's not yet. But then when he was going to the cross, it said a lot of the people dropped off because he was going to die. And messiahs don't do that. Messiahs don't die. But in order to reconcile us to himself, that had to happen. He had the long view. And so there he is hanging on a Roman gibbet. Suffocating, because you can't hold yourself up when you have nails just impaled here and there. And your body starts to collapse on itself, and you can't get your breath. And they spear him in the side, and the blood starts pouring out. And it says in John 19:25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, the three Marys. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Thirty three years before, hers was the first face he'd ever seen. And now it's going to be the last face he sees as the life breath goes out of him and his eyes start to blur. That's the face that he's seeing.
Because the long view is not just the long view. The long view takes into play this moment. Eternity captures time. So when you have real, authentic conversations, it has both the time piece and the eternal piece. The long view and the time piece come together in those kind of moments. He goes on to Jerusalem, and on the way, every place he stops, people say, don't go, don't go, don't go. A prophet even comes down from Judea by the name of Agabus and takes Paul's belt and ties up his ankles and says, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you like this and put you in prison. And Paul says, I know. That's why I'm going. Because sometimes somebody has a word from the Lord that outweighs counsel. Not always, not often. But in this journey of Paul's, in this last farewell road trip, he had that word. It was January of 1995. And I close with this. It was January 1995 in Washington, D.C., and a friend of mine in that November election had been elected to the United States Senate. His father had always been a big part of his life. His father was a university president and a great man of God. He was, uh, he was a, uh, not a pious man, but he had great piety. He wasn't like this. He was, he was what I call a practical mystic, somebody who's two inches off the floor but not off the wall. He's one of those guys. And a great heart for God and a great heart for people. And so John said, could you find a place for us early on the morning of the swearing in to just have a little prayer with a group of people? So we found a house and there we gathered 10 of us and we prayed and talked. And then John said, it's time to go. I need you to pray for him. And he slid onto his knees on the floor and his father was sitting on a couch, mid 80s, and he'd been a little ill and he was trying to get out of the couch. And John said, Dad, don't don't struggle to stand. And he said, John, I'm not struggling to stand. I'm struggling to kneel. And then he knelt by his boy and he put his hands on him and he prayed. When you see that, you know what kingdom-centered relationship looks like. The blessing of the father. He had done this when John was governor of his state. We got ready to go and the father, Robert, took me aside and said, Dick, I want to ask you a favor. I said, okay, sure. He said, um, John only has temporary offices. And I've got to go home tonight. But uh, when he gets his, his permanent offices, because you gather a group of friends and just go to those offices and just have a little ceremony, private, and just pray over them. Just go into John's office and say some stuff like, you know, let there be wisdom here. Or when you go to the communications office, let truth be told here. You know, just do that. If you, if you, it'd be great if you could do that. I said, I'm happy to put that together, but why don't you come back and you do it? Because you've done that before. He said, no. No, I won't, I won't be coming back. I said, okay. I, John was sworn in, and that night, John's elder brother, Bob, took the father, Robert, and their family and headed home. Three the next morning, my phone rang, and it was Bob in Kansas City saying, Dad was feeling a little uh, ill last night after dinner, and about midnight, we took him to the hospital. And an hour ago, he went home to Jesus. He said, uh, John doesn't have a phone in the little place he has yet. Could you go tell him? So I got up at three in the morning and dressed and drove over to Capitol Hill and knocked on John's door on the outer glass door. And when the inner door opened, John was standing there and he looked at me and said, is it dad? I said, yeah. 
We walked in and sat and drank tea and ate muffins and cried and laughed and told stories about what a wonderful thing kingdom-centered relationships are. Because I asked John one time, I said, what's the best thing your dad ever told you, taught you? He said, the greatest thing my dad ever taught me was that there are some things in life more important than I am. Like the reconciliation and redemption of the world. And he said, it changed my whole view of life. It's the long view. J. Robert, the father, knew something that the rest of us didn't know. And it was good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in this day. Thank you for your great heart toward us. Just in the quiet of this moment, there may be some of us here who say, you know, there are a couple of relationships that I've let slip. They're strained, and I don't want them to be strained. And I'd like the Lord's help going forward to mend those, to know that touch again. And you just say, I'd like you to include me in your closing prayer. And you'd slip your hand up and just say, include me. Just slip your hand. Yes. Yep. 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 I see them. Yes. It's great. You can put your hand down. There may be some here who say, I don't have any relationship with this Jesus that Paul talks about or that you talk about. But I'd like to explore that. I'd like to get started. I don't know how to do that, but I'd like you to pray for me too. And you just slip your hand up and say, include me in your closing prayer. You just slip your hand up wherever you are and let me see that. Just lift it up a little higher. So, I, Yes, I see you. You can put your hand down, sir. Thank you. Anyone else? Just lift your hand up. Yes, I see you. Got you. Bless you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being in the kingdom. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray for these who have lifted a hand, who say, I want to know kingdom relationship, just starting with Jesus or being mended with Jesus along the way, those places of strain. I pray a a fresh anointing, whatever that means. I pray that upon these dear friends who have lifted a hand, that they might have the long view and be willing to step into a nurturing place one more time. Thank you, Lord. We just want you to know that we'll never get over you. Thank you for never getting over us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.